Welcome to Health Hackers. Thank you for being here. It is a pleasure to have you and it is also a pleasure to thank the sponsors of this episode. Glycanage, a science-based lab test you can take at home that estimates your biological age or what some may call your true age. Regular viewers, you might recognize the name Glycanage after my video review of my experience last summer. And by the way, you can still get 15% off your own home test kit using the code HEALTHHACKERS at the Glycanage checkout. Since making my review video, the company and I stayed in touch, and now I'm thrilled to be able to call Glycanage a current sponsor of Health Hackers. Head to glycanage.com to find out more about their test kits. And if you missed my review of Glycanage, the link to the video is in the summary text that goes with this episode. Thank you, Glycanage, for supporting Health Hackers. Now, over to the latest guest interview. Welcome to Health Hackers episode 60. Today I am honored to be joined by a world-renowned expert in REBT, that's Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. Psychologist Dr. Debbie Joffe Ellis is based in New York, where she divides her time between teaching as a professor at Columbia University, New York City, her writing for Psychology Today and other publications and books, her public presentations on REBT, and her mental health counseling work. Dr. Joffe Ellis spent years collaborating with her husband, the father of REBT, Dr. Albert Ellis, before he passed away in 2007. His development of REBT in the 1950s is understood to have helped lay the foundations for the well-known CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. One of Dr. Joffe Ellis's main goals is sharing the techniques of REBT with everyone, not just teaching healthcare professionals. She travels throughout the US USA, Australia, India, Malaysia, China, Europe, the UK, and other countries giving presentations and workshops at universities and major conferences, as well as writing the second edition of the book Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, originally written by her late husband, Dr. Joffe Ellis also co-authored Understanding Suicide's Allure. If you're wondering what on earth is Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, we're about to come to that. But let me say this, when I saw a YouTube video of Dr. Joffe Ellis giving a presentation about REBT in which she suggested that anxiety is a choice, I knew I absolutely had to try and convince her to appear as a guest on Health Hackers so that she can share with all of you and me how we can choose the way we feel about our experiences. And before we begin, a quick note to new viewers and listeners, anything you hear on Health Hackers should not be considered personal or medical advice. You know the score. Always talk to your health provider about your concerns. Dr. Joffe Ellis, welcome to the show. Ah, Gemma, it's such a pleasure to be with you and, and with your attendees. And uh, you didn't need to convince me, you know, just your, your spirit and, and your intention in, in doing the work you do in spreading important knowledge. I'm, I'm so delighted to meet you and join with you and uh, hi to anyone, everyone watching too. Oh, we're thrilled to have you here. Now, I have heard you describe the early development of REBT by your late husband as a no-nonsense, no-BS approach. Would you tell us a bit about that and some of the key aspects that define REBT? Sure, I'd love to, Gemma. Well, my husband, uh, I've, I've got a handsome dude, right? Oh. Um, yeah, he was a lot older than me. And when he was studying psychology, Freud and psychoanalysis ruled the psycho 
therapy roost, so to speak. And, and my husband used to say often that he thought he was born with a gene proficiency. And whilst he could recognize that psychoanalysis helped some people have insight and so forth, in his opinion, though some people undergoing psychoanalysis might feel better after a session, he didn't observe them getting better. In other words, he saw that they weren't taking responsibility for their emotional experience, that they had habitual tendencies perhaps to blame circumstances or other people and so forth. So even though he trained in psychoanalysis because he had no choice, he worked on creating this no-nonsense, no-BS, not difficult to understand and not difficult to apply if a person is motivated enough and, and cognitively able, of course, approach that is also imbued with compassion, imbued with positivity and encouragement. And I would say that the, the manner of it could be described as realistic optimism, not romantic, la-di-da, pie in the sky, it's all for the best. I mean, we, if we believe it's all for the best, that can be helpful. I, I'm not discouraging that idea if it's helpful, but sometimes that can take a person away from being pragmatic. And so REBT encourages realism, positivity, compassion, not only for oneself, by the way, and that's another thing I adore about it, but it encourages us to be mindful of other people and to help other people and to care about the well-being of other people and the planet and other species. And so that's a, a broad, general part response to your, your excellent first question. And then you asked for me to tell you a bit about it. Given that we've got a short period of time, this is the elevator version, but of a very tall building because you know, there's quite a few things to say. Okay, so the first element of it is, as I've indicated, I, I hope clearly enough, it's not what happens, it's not what other people do or say to us that creates our emotional response, reaction and or experience. It's what we tell ourselves about it. The next main point is, when we think in healthy, rational ways, and let's talk about when challenges happen, you know, when, when things happen that we don't want to happen or very bad things happen or an unexpected um, pandemic, yeah? or when we had our hearts set on something and, and we don't get it, okay? So when we think in rational ways about that, then we create what REBT calls healthy emotions and, and it puts in their healthy negative emotions, not negative because they're bad, but because they're not all that pleasant. But really, when you think about it, it would be abnormal to be happy about people dying from pandemic, right? So, but a healthy versus unhealthy negative emotion. And so REBT teaches us, gives us, and you don't have to be an academic or a student at college to understand the difference between the healthy and unhealthy ones, which are, let's start with the unhealthy negative emotions. Anxiety, extreme fear and panic, depression, hopelessness, despondency, rage, guilt and shame. 
Now, when we think in healthy, rational ways about whatever circumstance or person appeared, didn't, but appeared to create the unhealthy emotions. So thinking in rational ways, we create healthy concern instead of anxiety. Concern is important. It's not about getting into some neutral emotional zone and, oh, well, peace and love and I'll accept it and go with the flow. No, if something dramatic or serious or critical is happen, happening, it's helpful to have concern. That can motivate us to consider what action might be helpful and then to motivate us to take the action. So concern instead of anxiety. Healthy grief and sadness and disappointment instead of hopelessness, despondency and depression. You know, despondency and hopelessness and depression are often present along with guilt and shame when people give up on life and attempt suicide. Whereas grief and sadness when a beautiful period in our life is over, when people we like, love have passed on or left us they're healthy they're enriching they're part of the tapestry of life that allow us to to value what we had and over time when the the pain may be less raw to to experience how the grief is married to the love and and gratitude then emerges so grief sadness disappointment healthy and instead of rage, which is destructive and usually does more harm and no good, healthy anger, what do I mean by healthy anger? Um, without going into detail, it's that experience when we receive or witness some unethical or immoral behavior, and it's that adrenaline-fueled no <laughs> that, that comes up. But we choose to think about our thinking and what's going on and what might be the best action to take. Now, being realistic, there might be some situations where there might not be those moments to reflect, but more often than not, there are. And if we're in the habit of thinking about our thinking and its connection to our emotions, then we can create healthy anger, which motivates us best case to contribute to healthy changes in our lives and in our world. Finally, when we think in rational ways, instead of shame and guilt, we create regret. Again, that's an emotion connected to our moral compass where we admit we're fallible humans that might have done a bad thing or failed at something or, or did something that was really mistaken as we look back. REBT reminds us we are not what we do. Our worth is not determined by our actions. REBT reminds us that each individual has worth simply because we exist. Now, hopefully we choose to do more good than harm, but even if we do that, we're not a good person. We're a person doing good things. A person who does bad things, you know, where there's life, there's hope. They may choose to, to change. So REBT emphasizes unconditional acceptance of oneself and others of, and life. It emphasizes the importance of daily gratitude. It emphasizes the importance of remembering that to create and maintain healthy change, 
usually doesn't happen overnight. I mean, awareness is the important first step, but then it's important to keep on <clears throat> making effort and to, to tolerate that it might take longer than we prefer to develop patience and use humor and have a healthy perspective on life, especially when bad things happen, to watch out that we're not being dramatic and catastrophizing and awfulizing and thinking in absolutistic ways. REBT, in conclusion of my reply, long reply to your, your question, Gemma, is it not only is an effective evidence-based psychotherapeutic approach, but it's a way of life for those of us who choose to adopt it and practice it. And it really enriches one's life. It minimizes misery and maximizes joy when the reality is that life probably will contain loss and suffering for most of us. That's fascinating to hear. And Dr. Joffrey Ellis, you suggested there that with REBT, it's never about the bad thing that happens. It's always about how we react and how we think about that circumstance and viewing it rationally, well, trying to view it rationally. And I know that disputing irrational beliefs is a key part of REBT. Would you talk us through an example of how someone might apply those techniques to an event they're feeling anxious about, and I know we've communicated by email that I'm happy to provide you with a real life example of something I'm feeling anxious about, if that's helpful. I think that would be really helpful, Gemma. Yes, thanks. But first, um, if I may, on that, you know, elevator description, <laughs> um, I didn't describe the elements of irrational thinking. So before we can dispute irrational thoughts, we got to identify them. And so if I may really quickly now describe, how do we know if what we're thinking is rational or irrational? So when we think in irrational ways, we have shoulds, we have musts, we have oughts. I, I invite um, people who are, are watching and listening to to consider, if you would, while I'm describing the nature of the irrational thinking, whether you ever think in these ways and whether it serves you or not. So anyway, it's the demands, the shoulds, the musts, the oughts. Some very common ones are I must do well and be loved, liked, approved of by everyone. The second one is you. You could be an individual, a group, a community, a religion, a country, a philosophy, a political group. But it's you, individual or plural, must either treat me well, treat me the way I think you should, or you must believe what I think you should, what I know is right. That dogma. And the, the third common one, or a third common one, is life should be fair and with justice. Of course, it's healthy to prefer that and to work towards creating that. But REBT is realistic to its core. And saying something should be a certain way when it's not can only evoke anger or another unhealthy emotion, hopelessness perhaps as well. And another very common one, especially during this pandemic time I've observed, is 
the need for certainty. I must know when it's over. I must know if the vaccines are safe, if I'm pregnant. I must know if, if it's okay to take be vaccinated. You know, so these, these dire needs are also part of irrational thinking, then catastrophizing, awfulizing, um, blowing things out of perspective, not having a sense of humor, uh, thinking in an absolutistic way and stereotyping and overgeneralizing, I'll never or you always. And um, finally damning oneself and others and life when things don't go the way we think they should. And when we think in rational ways, it's the opposite of that. We have preferences, surely we have wishes and goals that if I want something and I don't get it, I'll probably create or be feeling disappointment, sadness, grief, they're healthy. That if I, it should be this way and I don't get it, I'll probably create rage or extreme hopelessness. Right? So healthy, rational thinking, preferences, not demands, not catastrophizing or awfulizing or thinking absolutistic ways, having a sense of humor, keeping things in perspective, having high frustration tolerance, reminding ourselves we can stand what we don't like. We just don't like it. And all important, as I mentioned earlier, unconditionally accept, accepting ourselves, knowing that we have worth simply because we exist. If we screw up, let's learn from it, but we still have worth. And so important that children be taught that, by the way. And then uh, secondly, we have unconditional other acceptance that we work on, and it's not easy for most of us. If someone has acted atrociously, but we make the choice to work on not accepting their bad behavior and yes, seeking justice if we can, but reminding ourselves for our own well-being, for the health of our inner climate, that that for, but for the grace of my thinking and attitudes, I could have done that too if I had their biochemistry and their history. So to adopt an attitude of not approving of their behavior, but accepting that this person has acted in a very disturbed way. At the time they acted, it seems they were disturbed in some way because people who are in good health emotionally, cognitively and behaviorally usually don't act in brutal ways against others. So there's some disturbance there. So anyway, unconditional other acceptance and unconditional life acceptance, uh, marriage to daily gratitude where yeah for example now it's really difficult restrictions the, the pandemic but i'm still alive you know if, if any of you are listening to this you're doing a lot better than a lot of other people and um so so rather than all of life is because all of this no these things are very bad but then there's also this and let me be grateful so Gemma, how can I help you? Oh. <laughs> right. Well, well, thank you for outlining all of those um, different elements there. I, I can tell you that from my perspective, I am feeling anxious about having a baby for the first time in January. So that's about five months away. Um, I imagine everybody's afraid of, of that moment. Um, so I thought it'd be a pretty good example 
for you to demonstrate how REBT might be applied to an event that someone's feeling anxious about? I think that's a, an excellent example and, and yeah, a lot of uh, first-time parents-to-be can create anxiety within them. So, um, as I said to you before the recording, congratulations, stay healthy and well. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> but now, let's, let's, let's put our detective hats on. Gemma, what might you be telling yourself to make yourself feel anxious? Because if you don't mind, I, I, I think differently about something you said. You said you think or you imagine that every first time mother to be feels anxious. But from my observation, actually that's not true. A lot of mothers do it because they probably think in similar ways to you. But other mothers, first time mothers, again, not all, obviously, are excited, are optimistic. So it's not that you're a first time mum, you and, and thousands of other mothers who create anxiety. It's what you're telling yourself about it. So what might you be thinking that's contributing to you feeling anxious? It's not just I'm gonna have a baby in January. No, there's something more or some more things. So, I would say it's very much multifactorial, but the biggest, if I was to pick the biggest um, fear, I suppose, is the idea of something going so wrong that it could lead to long-term suffering or injury, both, uh, for me or my baby and therefore wouldn't create the idea of early motherhood that I want because there might be something that, we're, that is still being dealt with from the day of delivery. I think this has a lot to do with reading um, about experiences that some other people have unfortunate experiences that some other people have gone through. Mm -hmm. Right. So, first of all, where is the solid evidence that that's going to happen to you? So there is none. Okay. Now, I'm not saying it's not a possibility because you're a human being just like the other women who unfortunately did go through those experiences. But here we are right now. And you're telling me right now there is no evidence that that's definitely going to happen. So that's encouraging. However, let's look at, if we're going to be hypothetical and project ahead, let's say worst case scenario in, in what you describe. Because, I mean, in the bigger picture, wouldn't worst case scenario be something even more drastic than that? But let's stick, which is death, but let's stick to your example. Let's say worst case scenario that happened. Then what? Well, then I wouldn't be able to enjoy being a new mum if there was a significant amount of pain or suffering. And especially if that was long term. Mm -hmm. Well, 
you may not be able to enjoy it as much in all probability as if everything flowed in a healthy, smooth way. But is it possible that even if there were some challenges and it wasn't as Pollyanna-ish or happy as you're demanding it should be, and there's nothing wrong with preferring it, that's very healthy. But where I think you're getting yourself in trouble might be, and tell me if I'm wrong, it must go well or it will be awful and I couldn't stand it and I'll never be happy. I would never be happy in the role of dealing with a you know, child who has some disability or a guy then have some disability. I think there's some awfulizing and masturbating going on. That's M-U-S-T. It must or it must not. Yeah. So, and I just want to insert, um, I was very close friends with a woman who gave birth to a child with um, severe cerebral palsy. And the joy on her face when she fed her child was not different from the joy on the face of a mother who feeds a healthy child. Having said that, for many hours in her day, there was not as much joy and it was more difficult. That's the reality. So worst case scenario, do you think it would really not be possible that you could have some enjoyment and enrichment, even though it wouldn't be as much as you dreamed of and preferred? Yeah, I think to me, the biggest, I mean, this probably sounds really selfish, but I think the biggest fear is that if I become injured and if I suffer some sort of um, physical trauma that goes on for a, an incredibly long time, if not lifelong, and then what I think is my must that you mentioned, I think is, the, is that I must be completely pain-free to be able to enjoy being a mother. I'm, I, I think it's fabulous that you've identified it so clearly. Now, there's no question it would be preferable, but why must you? And prove to me that worst case scenario in this instance, where you were somehow debilitated and maybe for a long while, that it would ruin every moment of your every day and that you could never have any satisfaction. Prove to me. Um... Well, I can't prove that to you. You say that with some doubt. Really? Are you sure you can't prove it to me? Because if you say it to me, I, want, I encourage you to be convinced of that fact. Because I agree, I don't think you can. But really? No, I can't prove it, but I feel like I would be really sad um, if I couldn't... if I couldn't do things like pick her up or walk around or take her to the park. But I can't prove that any of this would, would happen and it's, it is highly unlikely that it will. Right, but, but you also can't prove that it, in the long term, if that, heaven forbid, happened, 
that it would be continually devastating because I know of a lot of disabled mums who have a lot of joy in life and they learn to cope. Does a person need to have every circumstance perfectly healthy and, and the way we wish in order to have a fulfilling life, Gemma? Does every person you know, including you, can they say that they've never suffered? No. And yet, do you, let's bring it back to you, despite my hunch that you've been through some tough times in this realm or that, did you not survive? Um, I think you did. And, and does your life not still have meaning? It does. But I'm glad I got over those tough times. And I think maybe there's another must here that I must get over every tough time or I won't be happy. I'm glad you've identified the must. Right. Um, so a few comments about that. I, how realistic, or it's, it's more of a question. Now, let me ask you, these are the typical disputing questions. How realistic is that? Where is the evidence for that? And where is it getting you to think that right now? Can you answer those questions? Realistic? Evidence? Where is it getting you? I mean, it's highly unrealistic that you have to get over every single tough time to ever feel happiness. Even in, even in the toughest of times, you could still smile at something. Something can, my husband still makes me laugh. Um, uh, the evidence, again, I'm seriously lacking in evidence to back up any of these fears. And where is it getting me? Oh, it's just pushing me into a spiral of, of more what ifs, which isn't helpful at all. And anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do I look in a pretty good space to you in terms of good mood, healthy emotions, productive life? Yeah, you look like you're in a good space in every okay. way. Oh, well, I don't know about every way, but he died 14 years ago. How come I'm not still miserable? My mother died a few years after that. How come I'm not still miserable? Do I still grieve? Do I miss them? Do I adore them? Yeah. In the beginning, was the pain raw? You bet. Also, some really challenging things happened to my husband and I in his final years of life. Quite devastating. The most brutal things he went through, and not just physically, was in our work environment. And am I still dwelling on that or letting that bring me down? No. And then to give you more um, extreme truthful experience, um, my late, magnificent, beautiful, heart of gold parents um, survived five years in concentration camps, lost most of their immediate family, you know, had the opportunity, got to Australia, started a new family. And my life was joyful because they were filled with gratitude for their new beginnings. Did they cry and miss their loved ones who were murdered? Of course, but that wasn't their main focus. There was appropriate memory and appropriate focus on the here and now and what still was good despite what they 
were brutally deprived of. So I'm giving you a few examples of the fact that in life, some bad things happen. And even back to you, beautiful Gemma, if worst case scenario, and you've indicated your doctor haven't, doctors haven't even said, well, Gemma, there's a strong possibility. Having said that, you know, things happen, you know, and you've read what you read. So things can happen. And yet it's so helpful, I think, to your viewers, and I hope to you that you've admitted that you're dwelling on something for which there isn't much, if any, evidence that it certainly will happen. And that you're from that assuming that if it does, it would devastate you for the rest of your life. So can you see how your formerly kind of catastrophic, pessimistic, awfulizing has contributed to anxiety, which by the way, anxiety affects the body. And that can affect your pregnancy and well-being more than imaginings, well, imaginings of what can be will cause the anxiety that does. Anyway, your thoughts on my little monologue just now, please. Well, I, I think the, the personal experiences you've just provided there uh, have given me a huge shift in perspective. Uh, certainly reframed my childbirth fears there. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry that you've experienced such hardship. And what an inspiration that you've been able to come through all of that and your parents. It's remarkable. Thank you. Well, it, it's, I, it's not that remarkable, given the fact I've practiced to the best of my ability and some days have been more difficult than others. I practice what I... I preach, you know, I think one of the tragedies in human life, Gemma, and that's why I'm so happy you have the program you have to help people think about their lives and make good choices, not just, you know, me, but in the other topics you've explored, so important and beneficial. So I think one of the tragedies, so many people don't realize that we create our emotions and our emotional destiny and don't realize what they can do when bad things happen, you know, and they go back to habitual ways of thinking and, and don't know how to help themselves feel better when bad things happen. That's one of the things I love about REBT. It gives the simple how-tos. And, and just to, to recap a little, what you and I did and what a person can apply to any challenging situation, Think about what am I feeling? Is it healthy grief? Then if it is, accept that. Go with that. Self-nurture. Seek support. But if it's hopelessness, rage, any of the unhealthy ones, then the next question is, what am I telling myself to make myself feel this way? Because it's not the circumstance. It's not. And then identify the irrational beliefs and then do what you and I did. The disputing, again, you ask questions of every belief, so you stop believing it. You know, some forms of, of positive thinking and, and therapy say, find your unhealthy beliefs and replace them with the healthy ones. Well, of course, REBT wants that. But it wants us to do it most um, efficiently. And if we still somewhere believe the unhealthy beliefs that we shall push them aside and think in healthy ways, they're going to come up again. And so what's going to work the best is to stop believing them. 
and how we question them. And when we have no good answers, where's the evidence? Where is it getting me? Is this realistic? Then we stop believing that crap. And then it's easier, it still takes time to make the default, the go-to, the new habitual way of thinking, the healthy rational thoughts. So we identify irrational, dispute, 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 identify the healthy ones, and then repetition, repetition, repetition for at least 30 days. Neuroplasticity research shows that that's the minimum time it usually takes people to create new neural pathways of thinking in the brain. Repetition, repetition, repetition. So for me, and I do want to point out that I am very excited about meeting my daughter. I, and I'm, very, I'm also very excited about childbirth. Um, but for the times that I feel twangs of fear, is it best for me to, given what you've just said, repeatedly ask, where's the evidence for this? Where's the evidence that I'll be in pain afterwards? Where's the evidence that... You can't be happy even when you're in pain and just keep on going until, well, until I believe it, really believe it. Yeah, but, but first identify the specific beliefs. Not Before you go to where's the evidence, get the specific beliefs. If I'll be in pain, it would be awful. I'm not gonna be able to stand it if. So the first step actually, what am I telling myself? And if this is newish to you and to other people, it's good to write it down. You know, after you've practiced RBT for a while, you can do it quite well in your own head without writing. But so write down, and then where's the evidence? Where is it getting there? And then to write down the helpful new beliefs, such as it's very likely that all will go well, but if not, just like millions of women before me, I can still cope and still have a good life. Something in your own words that's encouraging, that you believe, not just parroting my words, but something from you to you, that you would tell your daughter when she's an adult have, about to have her first baby. What, would you, what are you gonna tell her? Dr. Debbie, that just sounds, that sounds perfect. And that's already made me feel happier. And I thank oh, no, you. No, 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 no. You have made you feel happier. Because you are thinking differently. I am blessed and delighted to contribute, but let's let's own the power. You have changed your attitude so you feel happier. So Gemma, you did it. And I'm glad I could help. Well, I'm I'm glad we were able to talk and you have to do this. And I know I, I feel very honored to have your time. I know that we don't have much longer, and I, I wanted to cover a couple more questions with you. Um Earlier, you were talking all about the unhealthy versus healthy negative emotions. Um, specifically, I want to come back to healthy anger. Now, how do you teach somebody to use REBT to let go of unhealthy anger that might be affecting them daily? And, I, and I, I'm thinking here of an example of if someone feels so wronged by something that may have happened to them in the past, the idea of choosing not to be angered by it anymore would, or it might feel like, letting the perpetrator get away with it, get away with something. It's such an important question, Gemma, as all your questions have been. Yeah, so the first thing is to realise that hanging on to anger 
towards, let's say, a certain perpetrator of a rotten act. Hanging on to that anger and bitterness is like eating poison and waiting for them to die. It's not going to hurt them one bit. By the way, my husband came up with that expression, which is now frequently used all over the place, I'm happy to say. Um, yeah, it's not going to affect them. And so it's going to be helpful for the holder of the anger to realize I'm just hurting me. I'm poisoning myself. And a um, ton of research you can find a lot in the Journal of the American Medical Association and countless other places. Unhealthy anger contributes to atherosclerosis, high blood stress, uh, pressure, and, and uh, manifesting previously latent conditions that we may be genetically predisposed to. The person who thinks in a healthy, rational way may not manifest certain conditions that someone experiencing ongoing long-term, I'm talking about one-off here or there, but a, a chronic ongoing rage can really manifest bad health physically. Anyway, so the first step is realizing that I am hurting myself if I'm going to continue to hold on to the anger. The second step would be, what am I telling myself to create this anger? They shouldn't have. I can't stand it. You know, um, I never should have had to. I never should have to. It's over. And, and to identify those thoughts. And then to dispute each one of them. And at the same time, to have a healthy perspective. What's a healthy perspective? Number one. The reality is, in life, people who think in disturbed ways may often act in bad and evil ways. And if we are willing to consider that that person was once a baby too, and if any one of us was born with their genetic, genetic makeup and a tendency to this or that, if any one of us had their brain chemistry and maybe some distortions or, or disturbance in their brain biochemically, if any one of us had gone through what they've gone through in childhood, adolescence, adulthood, maybe they were bullied. And the way to feel important was to belong to a group of people who acted and behaved in evil ways. And if any one of us had been thinking what they were thinking, when they did the evil act, isn't it probable we might have done the same thing? Now, any of you going, but, 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 please don't misunderstand me. This is not excusing bad behavior. This is not saying don't work to, to um, if possible, get some just consequences. But it's saying that thereby the grace of whatever could have been you. And in life, there have been many people who have been brutalized and some of them have dwelt on it and experienced rage and gotten sick or committed suicide. And others have worked on over time, acknowledging this was a very, a very grievous, sad thing. But in life, some of us endure that. And I refuse 
to make myself believe I'm a victim in any negative way. In practical terms, I endured brutality, but I am choosing to empower myself to focus on the fact that I survived, to focus on the fact that many other people who have survived even worse than me, and that's not to belittle what I've been through, but other humans have endured such things and have gone on to focus on what they have, can be grateful for rather than to dwell on the injustice. So I can choose to take the high road. It can take time and effort. But the fact is, if I'm here and alive, it could have been worse. Let me choose to be an inspiration to others by not succumbing to self-pity. That does not mean we don't allow self-compassion and self-love that we endured and here we are. But not that, oh, I'm such a victim, it shouldn't have happened. It preferably should not have happened. But it happens, sadly. So our choice is our attitude and how we move forward since here we still are. I hope that's helpful. I, I, I know we have limited time. I, I, that's the best I could do in the brief time for now, Gemma. Oh, I loved it and, it and it was perfectly clear. Before you do go though, Dr. Debbie, I wanted to ask you about your late husband because I, I think this is a, a big factor that I, I want to acknowledge with you from what I understand. In the 1950s, when your husband proposed this, this way of teaching people that they could be responsible for their own emotions, what was the reaction like from his peers in psychotherapy and psychology? He was booed and made fun of and jeered with a J, not cheered, but J-E-E-R, jeered, <laughs> um, called simplistic and stupid, you know, particularly by um, people in his field who were very attached to psychoanalysis is the way, the only way. Now, I want to make clear for any viewers who are working with a psychoanalyst or that approach, if it's contributing to your life, that's great, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm not meaning to put that down. However, it's not the only way available. And so my husband, having endured a lot of suffering in his life from childhood onwards, and being a brilliant constructivist genius who made the choice, I don't want to suffer this sad emotion so much of the time, and found ways to help himself feel those healthy rather than unhealthy negative emotions and wanted people to suffer less. He came up with his approach and practiced what he preached. And one of the irrational beliefs people have of I must be loved and approved of, he preferred, he would have loved it if his peers agreed with him and saw the brilliance of it, but he didn't need it. And he was so convinced and so motivated to help people suffer less that he just kept on writing about it and teaching about it. And bit by bit, more and more people in the field accepted it. Now, unfortunately, especially since his passing, 
since the excellent CBT approach is, is very well known, fewer people are recognising that Al pioneered that. And REBT, unfortunately, is being marginalised. And so people who studied psychology in his day still, of course, know the history and that he started it. And they know what's in REBT that isn't so much emphasised in CBT. And again, please don't mistake me as in any way criticising CBT. I'm not. But there are some different emphases. And, and, and very briefly, one is that REBT is more philosophical than CBT. But it's no less pragmatic and it's no less scientific. That's the thing. You get the whole, what's the expression? Um, I forget what the expression is, but it, it's more holistic. And REBT invites the person what, to consider what's my philosophy of life? What am I thinking? And to go from there, in addition to being very pragmatic. And so it's my wish and mission in life, not, not in any way to say do REBT, not anything else. No, but to know what's available and choose. And to learn REBT, either from reading, if not from an REBT therapist, not everyone wants or needs therapy, but you can read about it. And, you know, on my website, I think you're going to mention it, is a self-care form. And you can go through the ABCDE of REBT. And so I think it's really tragic that um, some of the younger teachers and therapists are neglecting to learn and teach about the unique offerings of REBT. We can do both and. It doesn't have to be either or CBT, psychoanalysis, REBT. The main thing in life is let each of us be grateful for the gift of life and the privilege a human has to think about our thinking and to construct healthy emotions when rotten things happen. And so that every day of our life, to make it a habit, to remember what we can be grateful for and to work on accepting ourselves and others and life when bad things happen especially. And um, to share, to share those attitudes with other people who may not realise that they have a choice about their attitudes and therefore they suffer more than is necessary. Oh, Dr. Debbie, well, I really hope this episode can play some role in raising awareness of REBT and helping you achieve that mission. And viewers and listeners, you can read much more about Dr. Debbie at her website. That's debbiejoffieellis.com. Um, I'll add the link in the summary text that goes with this video. As she mentioned, there are videos there, articles, and the emotional self-care and self-help sheet. If you're watching Health Hackers on YouTube, hit subscribe for regular videos. If you're watching or listening to this through Facebook, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, you can opt to follow the show there too. Dr. Debbie, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure, Gemma. Thank you for your excellent questions. Thank you for your courage, frankly, in self-disclosing. And will you do your homework? Yes. Think about your thinking every day? I will. <laughs> Wonderful, see, and, and so there you're an example to other people of, of what can be done. So anyway, it's been a joy to be with you and with whoever's watching. Thanks for watching and listening, everyone. Bye-bye.